Hey, so my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here and grateful to be with you guys this weekend. Uh, so if you know me, you know that I am borderline addicted to podcasts, and uh, I'll take your recommendations in the lobby after service. Every now and then I come across a podcast that stops me in my tracks. I heard about one that uh, was called Dopey, and uh, Dopey was started by two friends, one guy named Dave and another guy named Chris, and both of these guys were recovering addicts. Dave actually worked at downtown at Katz's Deli, and after being sober for a couple of months, he decided that he wanted to start a podcast. So he reached out to one of his friends that he met at rehab, a guy named Chris, and they started a podcast. But there was one explicit rule about this podcast, that they didn't want it to be self-help. All they wanted it to do was to tell crazy stories about what they did when they were high, and so they put it in the comedy section of iTunes, not in the self-help section. So in the first episode, it talks about, uh, it starts off with Chris talking about how he robbed a veterinarian's office for his imaginary cat named Smeagol to get some drugs and did some time in jail as a result. And both of the hosts just laughed about all of the crazy, stupid things that they did. Eventually and unexpectedly, the podcast started to get a lot of steam and they were getting 3,000 listeners per week. Shameless plug, Renaissance has a podcast. Let's get those numbers up. And uh, they were getting 3,000 callers a week, and over the time, Chris and Dave, the two hosts, started to actually look nothing like their callers. They were starting to get callers who week after week would talk about all of the crazy things that they would do when they were high, but Chris and Dave started to live really reformed and good lives. Dave was married with kids, and Chris was getting his PhD in psychology, and eventually, all of the stories that they would hear... They would no longer laugh at them, but they actually started to feel really bad for people. They saw how dysfunctional people's lives were, and they wanted to use their platform for good. So by about episode 100, they changed their, um, uh, their podcast from comedy to self-help, because at this point, they were no longer just trying to make people li- laugh. They were trying to change people's lives. By about episode 132, uh, Something that happened, uh, one of the callers called in and was talking about a lot of his dysfunction, and you can just hear Chris and Dave pleading with this man to get help, uh, to not take it lightly, and all of the ingredients for what it looks like to to live a life overcoming addiction. And the same guy that they were pleading with on the phone uh, eventually overdosed and died. Chris and Dave were heartbroken, and now they really dialed it up. They were going to use this platform to try to give people all of the tools that they would need to get over a life of addiction and to move through it and to navigate it better. Now, at about episode 160, they started to notice, Dave started to notice something weird about his friend, Chris. Chris was all of a sudden getting forgetful. Things that he was normally sharp on, he was forgetting. He was elusive and evasive, and Dave would call him and try to pin him down on certain things, and he just wouldn't answer and respond. He'd reach out to Chris's girlfriend to see what was going on, and nobody knew what happened. And Chris was saying, oh, I'm just doing all these all-nighters for my PhD. Everything is fine. A few episodes after that, the unthinkable happened. They found Chris, his co-host, overdosed and died in his home. They started to piece together what happened in Chris's final few weeks. And what they realized was uh, he heard himself uh, exercising 
And after he got hurt, he messed up his back, and he went to the doctor's office, and the doctor prescribed him some opioids for painkillers. And this same Chris, who every single week talked to people, pleading with people about what it meant, like, what it meant to be an addict, that you couldn't approach life the same way that everybody else did, Chris started to ignore his own advice. He thought that he was stronger than other people, and that led to his death. He didn't keep the same advice that he gave out, and his fatal flaw, his fatal flaw was believing that what was happening to other people, his listeners, wouldn't happen to him. For the past few weeks, we've been in the Gospel of John, and in this uh, chapter, the third chapter, we finally see a group of people that were introduced to in the scripture called Pharisees. And John introduces us to this group of people called Pharisees, and these are addicts. But they're not addicted to painkillers. They're addicted to performance. They're addicted to rules and being better than other people. And John gives a story after story of these people, not so that you can just cast judgment on them, but as a warning. Because what happened to them could happen to you. I'm not worried about ancient Pharisees. I'm worried about accidental Pharisees. Men and women like you and I who start off with the best of intentions and somehow evolve into a version of faith that actually opposes Jesus and what he wants to do in our lives. The Pharisees gave out advice that they themselves didn't follow, and they put up a front that they were okay when they were messed up on the inside. And when Jesus assesses their spiritual condition, he calls them whitewashed tombs, that they might look alive, but they're actually dead on the, on the, on the inside. They had overdosed on their own righteousness. Now, in John 3, we're introduced to this group, and we're just going to look at the first couple of verses of John 3 and parse out these, these, these verbs and these words here. It says, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Uh, this is the first time in the Gospel of John that we see this group of people called the Pharisees who throughout all of the Gospels will be Jesus' major opponent. But here's the crazy thing about the Pharisees. They had the best of intentions. It wasn't like they set out and they were intentionally seeking a version of faith that would oppose the Messiah. In their life, they wanted to honor God. But somehow, some things crept inside. And you and I are not impervious to these things. Now, a lot of times when we talk about Pharisees, and if you've spent some time in church, uh, you might have heard sermons about Pharisees, and you might have read scriptures about Pharisees, and you just know that they are the enemy. And it's really easy to distance yourself from them as if um, you and them could uh, have nothing in common. And this is especially true for those of you in here who are new to church, and maybe you don't consider yourself that religious, and you say, well, these are the religious people who walked around with robes and condemned other people. I could never be like that. Uh, I want you to walk in humility a little bit about what we're going to get into today, because we see these people in Scripture as a warning about what our spiritual lives could devolve into. I'm not worried about the, the Pharisees uh, as, as much in the Bible as I am about the Pharisee that's leading your community group. I'm not worried as much about the Pharisee in the Bible as I am the Pharisee in your marriage that's ruining your marriage. I'm not worried as much about the Pharisees in the Bible as I am of the Pharisee that's standing on stage preaching a sermon. 
All of us have uh, things in our life that could lead us to a version of faith that more resembles the Pharisees than actually Jesus. Now, a couple of things about uh, the Pharisees. They were uh, a really influential religious group of people uh, in Judaism um, that were known for their emphasis on personal righteousness. Now, here's the most compelling thing about Pharisees. In their culture, they were the best people. They had the best reputations of anyone in their culture. Now, 2,000 years later, we look back on them with judgment saying how, you know, how much they went against Jesus. But in their day, they were actually hashtag goals. When you think about their life, um, you think about, the per- think about the person that you know that is the most moral, respected person that you know. Those are what the Pharisees were. This past week, I was working with um, Hope for New York, and uh, a bunch of pastors went to the Bowery Mission this past uh, Thursday night for something called Jobs for Life. And Jobs for Life is a wonderful uh, organization. Their goal is not just to give people money, but to equip men and women who were formerly living lives of addiction and incarceration and equip them with the tools and the resources and the counseling and the therapy for wholeness so that one day they could become productive members of society. And uh, we went on Thursday night for a a series of mock job interviews, and these guys are doing wonderful. It's a phenomenal organization. I met the, the, the director of Jobs for Life, and if I were to bring out the director of Jobs for Life on this stage right now, he would get a well-deserved round of applause. Why is that? Everything in our culture today says that that is a good thing, to rebuild broken people and transform them into productive members of society is a really wonderful thing that we should do more of. In their day, the Pharisees, everyone would have said that the things that they were doing were good things. Now, the problem is culture doesn't always translate well over different contexts, right? So culture doesn't always translate well over different contexts. And this is not just true of ancient to modern, but also true of people in the same time from different places. Uh, So Renaissance Church is a part of a a global church planting network called Orchard Group. And there are church plants all over the world and all over the country. And every year in January, all of us go to Miami to escape the cold. And we get together with all of these other pastor friends um, just for a, a couple of days of retreat. It's always very clear to me how different people are when I uh, meet with some of the planters who are from different parts of the world, uh, specifically the concept of personal space. <laughs> we have a, a church planter from, from Paris, and I know, I know France is a, is a language of love, French is a language of love and all of that, and I know that they're very comfortable in their own bodies and all of that, but this dude will have a full conversation with you Nose to nose. They could be like 30 feet. Nobody's around us. And he'll be like, so, Jordan, how are, how are things? I'm in that joint like Muhammad Ali, like, yo, things are good, bro. But you know what I'm saying? Things are good. Yeah, man, things are Stop, bro, stop. I'm from New York. And you don't just get nose to nose with somebody, right? It would be really weird if I did that in the lobby, but apparently in Paris, that's how they get down. That's what they do in in, in Parisian circles. It would be bad of me and unwise of me for me to make a judgment call about a culture that I don't understand. The same thing is true for you and for me as we look at the Pharisees. It would be bad of you and unwise of you to make a judgment call about a culture that we don't understand. 
Oftentimes, when you see them opposing Jesus, it's about things like ceremonial hand-washing and the Sabbath and things that we don't necessarily think about. But in their day, these were the major issues of their day. And everyone else in society, in their culture, would have thought that the Pharisees were really great people doing really great things. So as we think about the Pharisees, I want us to have some humility that if you lived 2,000 years ago, there's a very good chance that you would have taken their side. As a matter of fact, data shows that most people followed them in their side. The Pharisees were the people who rounded up everybody together to vote on who would be freed before the crucifixion. Two choices. You have Jesus Barabbas and Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Barabbas killed somebody. Jesus of Nazareth was teaching that he was the Christ and starting this spiritual revolution. The Pharisees were so popular that they convinced an entire crowd of people to go with freeing the murderer over freeing a teacher. This is how influential they were. And I don't know that if you and I lived in that time, we would have automatically hopped on Jesus' side. I think we're, we're lying to ourselves a little bit if we, if we say that. So all of us are in danger of becoming accidental Pharisees. And what, what, are, what were the Pharisees made up of? What was beneath everything that was going on? Why was Jesus so opposing of them? What were they doing that was so dangerous? It could be summed up in one word, pride. Pride. Pride is undue confidence. Undue confidence in and attention to one's own skills, accomplishments, state, possessions, or position. Pride is easier to recognize than it is to define. Easier to recognize in others than in oneself. I don't know if you've ever seen someone who's acting blatantly prideful and you're looking at them like, how does he not notice what he's doing? How does she not notice how prideful that is and how ugly that is? And you do the same thing. I do the same thing. It's super easy to see in other people, but we're often the last people to see it in ourselves. Why is that? That's because, as it says in Obadiah 1 and 3, your prideful heart has deceived you. I've always wanted a quote from Obadiah, and today was my day. <laughs> your prideful heart has deceived you. And this is what was going on with the Pharisees, that their prideful heart deceived them. What does it mean to be deceived? To be deceived means that you accept something as true as strongly or more strongly than you would, um, than uh, you, you accept something a, a, as true even though it is false, that you are blinded to the falsity of something, that you embrace it, you accept it as if it is good and as it's true, and it's not. Here's, in the text, it tells us that pride deceives us, and this is what happened to the Pharisees. Uh, and so there's a couple of symptoms of pride, a couple of symptoms of pride in your life, and a couple of symptoms that you might be in danger of becoming an accidental Pharisees. The first is that we judge our goodness by comparing ourselves to others. Symptom number one of pride: we judge our goodness by uh, we judge our goodness by comparing ourselves to, to others. Now, um, Jesus once told a story in Luke 18. It's a popular parable that Jesus taught, and it's about two men who go up to the temple to pray. Jesus tells the story, as it says in, in um, verse 9 of Luke 18, to those who trusted in themselves, which is a really important phrase that Jesus, uh, uh, that the gospel writer is telling us there, uh, to the people who trusted in themselves, Jesus told this parable that two guys go up to pray. One of them is a Pharisee. He gets to the temple and he looks up towards heaven and uh, he was an exceedingly moral man. 
He was overwhelmed by all the things that he had accomplished. So he started to thank God that he wasn't like other people. God, I thank you that I'm not like this person who robs and steals. But I, man, I fast twice a week. Um, I, I, I give more than a tenth of, of my possessions. And nothing in the scripture tells us that he was lying. He was actually telling the truth. The second man comes up, and this man is a tax collector. And people would have heard that uh, a tax collector to be someone who was the lowest of the low. He stole from his own people to give to the oppressor. This man gets to the temple, and it says he is so contrite and so beat down by his sin that he doesn't even look up towards heaven. He keeps his head down and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The most profound thing about this parable is that Jesus gives us no indication that this guy changed his life. But Jesus says that this guy walks away justified with God, and the Pharisee does not. What does this tell us about the nature of God? And what does this tell us about the nature of the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ? What does this tell us about you and I? When you and I judge our righteousness and our goodness based on other people, man, we're, we're setting ourselves up to be more like a Pharisee than we are to be like Jesus. Now, your list might not include tax collectors. To me, the IRS are just nerds with pocket protectors um, that don't bring out any uh, emotional response when I think about tax collectors. But I do have a list, and so do you. We have a list of people that we automatically think we're better than. Now, here's the thing about comparisons. To a certain extent, they're necessary, they're good, because it does help us to judge right and wrong. Jesus was not condoning the tax collector's behavior, and there are people whose behavior is wrong, flat out. Where pride sneaks in is not just addressing right and wrong, but now it attaches value and says that you're better than them. And now you must be right with God because they're not. If you are really into social justice, you are vulnerable to look down on people who are not as active as you are, who don't know all the right terminology, who are not always tweeting 7,000 things a day about their outrage about what's going on, um, who are not as involved in the movement of freedom as you are. Should people be more active in seeking justice? Absolutely. Are you better than them because of that? Absolutely not. If you're into caring for the earth, then you'll look down at people who, you know, use styrofoam. And this is a recycled cup that I'm using right now. <laughs> if you're really into theology, if you're really, and I've been to seminary, I'm, you know, I love, I love theology, I love learning about God. If you're really into theology and you read all of these dead old authors and you, you get into conversation about Pelagial and Pelagianism and all these different things and uh, you look down on people who think Malachi is Malachi and all these different things. If you are really into theology, your temptation is not just that you want to learn more about God. It's that since you know more than someone else does, oh, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry brother, you had that wrong. It's actually, it's Exodus 3. No, no, it's not, it's not Ecclesiastes 3, my brother. That's not, you had it wrong. If that's you, it's a particular danger that you would start to look down on people who don't know as much as you do. Should people know more about the Bible? Should people know more about God? Of course. We all could, should, should know as much as, we, as much as we can. Jesus calls us to love God with our minds as well. But I have a list. Uh, right after the last presidential election, I started to notice that there was an entire group of people that not just that I disagreed with them, but they were kind of dead to me. Anybody know what that feels like? Yeah. That there are entire groups of people, because of their behavior, I actually didn't care what happened to them. 
I don't really care if they get made right. I don't really care that they are corrected. I don't want, I don't care, I'm not going to waste my time engaging with them because whatever happens to them happens. They're, they're kind of dead to me. It's one thing to judge right and wrong. It's a completely different thing altogether to disconnect yourself and to feel better than them as if you don't need the grace of God operating in your life on a minute-by-minute basis. And that blind spot, that blind spot is pride. It makes you feel better than people, and it makes you resistant to grace. Here's the thing about grace. You can't resist it for other people and accept it yourself. The basis of grace is that undeserving people get good things from an unobligated giver. The same grace you refuse to others, you resist for yourself. So Pharisees were people who judge their goodness by comparing themselves to others. And you and I need to uh, be very diligent against uh, that trap. If there is a group of people that come to your mind, it would be very wise of you to spend some time in quiet reflection thinking about what you're doing and how you are currently operating. Are you operating like Jesus or are you operating like a Pharisee? Another symptom of being a Pharisee is that, this is a really subtle way, is that you can't celebrate good things happening to other people. Now, you can't celebrate good things happening to other people. Underneath that, the reason you don't think, the reason you can't celebrate is because you don't think they deserve it. Uh, In the the most told and most profound parable that Jesus has ever told, found in Luke 15, uh, the parable about the father and his two sons, also known as the prodigal son, tells a story about uh, two children, and one of these children takes his father's inheritance, spends all of his money recklessly, and then uh, wakes up one day broke and has nothing to eat. The son miraculously comes to his senses, returns home, and the father sees his son a long way off and runs to meet him. The heart of the father is always to meet us uh, where we are, y'all. Everybody was happy that the son is home, so much so that they threw a party and they killed the fattened calf. The fattened calf was reserved for the best day of your life. The father is essentially saying that my son coming home, my child coming home was the best day of my life. Everybody is partying, uncle's in the corner doing a cha-cha slide. It's lit. It's a great day. Everybody is partying except for the older brother. He's outside like, yo, tell pops to come outside. I'm not going in. Father uh, comes outside and starts pleading with his older brother and said, listen, we had to celebrate. We had to celebrate. Your, your brother, which was dead, is now alive. He was lost, and now he's found. All this time, all this time I've been working for you. All this time I've been with you every single step of the way. You never even gave me a little lamb for me and my friends, but now your, this son of yours comes home, and now you give him the fattened calf? Jesus, being the master storyteller that he is, never even resolves the story. The story ends with the older brother outside, and we don't know if he ever went into the party. What was he operating on? This son of yours doesn't deserve a celebration. He doesn't deserve it. You'll know this is true about you when you see your friend get the job, the apartment, the relationship, the children, the whatever it is, and you are unable to celebrate with them because deep down inside, you don't feel like they deserve it. What's going on in your heart? That's pride. That's pride. Pride is what kicked the the devil out of heaven. And until humility is born in us, nothing of heaven can live inside of us. So we're unable to celebrate with other people when good things happen in their life. 
And here's a crazy thing about pride. Pride is so focused on appearance that inevitably what's going to be true of you if you're prideful is that you will focus more on your appearance than you will your reality. Pride is uh, primarily focused on appearance. And Jesus uh, oftentimes would rebuke the Pharisees for being so much more focused on their appearance, how they were appearing to other people than their actual reality. In other words, you're more worried about how you look on the outside to people than you are how, what's actually going on inside of your life. That you would, conf- you would never confess what's going on in your, in your real heart, but you try to put on a, a mask. Jesus gives the Pharisees a pretty stern warning in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside... They are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear to be beautiful on the outside, but inside they are full of bones and dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." What Jesus was talking about in that word uh, hypocrite was uh, coming from Greek theater where men and women would put masks on and that was called hypocrite. And to be a good hypocrite was a compliment in those days. Uh, Jesus did not use it as a compliment. He's saying that your version of spirituality is more concerned with how good your mask looks on your face than what's actually going on inside of your heart. Now, this is a word to the Christians uh, who are a part of Renaissance and you're engaged in community You have to exercise wisdom in who you're sharing stuff with and how you're sharing it. But please, take your mask off somewhere. There needs to be some place that your mask is off. I'm not saying we get in the lobby, you got to start telling people everything that's going on in your life. But there needs to be some circle with someone, not someone who's just going to just encourage you to do whatever, but someone who actually knows the real nature of what's going on in your life. The unedited version. We can't heal from what we don't name. We can't move forward past what we're unwilling to accept. And uh, the Bible gives us a community of people who are meant to carry our burdens with us. Some of you guys are holding boulders on your shoulders. And you can't move forward. And it might be because that stuff is trapped on the inside of you. You're, you're more worried about your appearance than you are your reality. And so you're, you're holding it all to yourself. Confession tells us, it tells us in Scripture that if you confess your faults one to another, you will be healed. There's a part of your spiritual life that is presently obstructed because of our unwillingness to confess and, and, and some certain things. And we don't do it because we like keeping a mask on. It feels better that way. All of us like to be looked at and, and thought of in, in good ways. But when we do that, we're more like the Pharisees than we are like Jesus. Here's the thing about shame. Um, and here's the thing about uh, guilt and us hiding The gospel tells us that Jesus knows everything about you, everything about you. While we were still sinners, it tells us Jesus died for the ungodly. Jesus is not surprised at what happened. The Bible says that God is omniscient, means that he knows all things. He is the author and the finisher of our faith, means that God is the God of the middle as well. He knows what's going on in your life. You don't have to pretend, you don't have to hide like everything is all all good when it's not. We would all do very well to take this to heart, to not, Jesus' words hit to these Pharisees to heart. Uh, that we would take our masks off.
Now, another thing about the Pharisees, uh, something that was so insidious inside of their souls and is a symptom of pride is that uh, they separated loving God from, from loving people. Since pride is so focused on self, eventually what it does is it separates loving God and loving people. One of the primary battles that Jesus had with the Pharisees was that they thought they were killing it with God, but they didn't love nobody. And what they would do is try to separate what it meant to love God and love people. So much so that one day Jesus was having a conversation with some religious leaders, and they said, Jesus, tell us, out of all of the commandments, which one is the most important? Which one? Jesus responds with two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus refused to separate loving God from loving people. But this is something that the Pharisees did over and over again. In Luke 5, we see this up close and personal where uh, Jesus calls one of his disciples named Levi to follow him. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So leaving, behind, leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then that night, Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now, there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to the disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, It is not, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. One of the most loving things you can do is to lovingly, graciously, and gently engage with a person you believe is, is wrong about some stuff. In their mind, the Pharisees had a guide for who was good and who deserved God's grace. And the tax collectors and other people absolutely did not uh, deserve it. And they just didn't care what happened to them. Why would you even eat with them? Why do you care what happens to them? They would discard people. Discarding people is the opposite of love. It's indifference. And over and over again in Scripture, we're warned against a version of faith that claims to love God but doesn't love people. Later in one of his epistles, John writes, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Here's why. It's impossible to like really, really love someone and truly love them and not love who they love. If you love me, it's impossible to love me and be indifferent about my kids. It's impossible. Uh, my, I'm very close to my parents, and um, they've been with me every single step of my life. And um, my parents love who I love. Uh, they were with me in the darkest moments of my life when uh, my, my late wife passed away. And they were also there for the highest moments of my life when I met uh, my wife, Jessica. And I remember the conversation like it was yesterday, talking to my mother in the kitchen about this woman named Jessica. Uh, I know she could see the excitement in my eyes as I talked about her, uh, this woman who was also widowed, and uh, we had started dating. And before I said anything more about it, my mother was in love with Jessica. <laughs> Jessica could have looked like Shanene, and by the time... <laughs> this is a teachable moment. Google Shanene when y'all get home if y'all don't know who she is. She could have looked like Shanene, and my mother would have been like, oh, she's, she's wonderful. She's perfect. The first time we hung out, true story, 
Uh, you know, we went out to brunch, and my wife was cutting my, my niece's French toast. My mother was like, did you see the way she cut that French toast? <laughs> perfect squares, perfect squares. It was, I mean, just the perfect size. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Did you see that? In her heart of hearts, even though she had just met Jessica, she loved her because I loved her. Yeah. How is it that you love the God of the universe? who was not willing to see any of his children perish, but gave his son, Jesus Christ, so that all will come to repentance, but you don't love who God loves. Yeah. Be careful of a version of a faith that, doesn't, that separates and tries to separate loving God and loving people. I love a good argument theologically. I love a good debate. I love a good book. But your theology at some point needs to turn towards loving people. And if it doesn't, it's broken. So how do we recover from... Being a Pharisee, uh, how do we recover and stay away from becoming a Pharisee? Uh, and that's the gospel. Here's the gospel message, y'all. We try to get it every single week, every single day in our lives. The gospel message is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die. Our own righteousness on our own would never cut it. It's like trying to jump to the moon from here. You'll never be able to do it. But at the same time, you're so loved that God was pleased to do it. Fully known and fully loved at the same time. This is a gospel message. And it invites us into a humility where we can come to God, warts and all, knowing, trusting, as 1 John um, 1 and 9 says, that if we come to God and confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. And we see that here in, in this text about what it looks like to pursue God humbly. And we see this in the life of Nicodemus. It says, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night, Jesus at night, and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless you're with him. Uh, what Nicodemus was doing was risking his reputation as a Jewish ruler and humbly going to Jesus. Risking his reputation and humbly going to Jesus because in Nicodemus' mind, he knew that he had all of this information, but he really didn't have transformation. What do we see in the life of Nicodemus? We see humility. It's acknowledging the truth of who we are, that we're limited beings, that we are unable on our own, that we are need, uh, recipients of grace, that we need grace, and we are yielding to God his proper place in our life. That's what humility is. It's acknowledging the truth about who we are, not beating yourself up, but acknowledging the truth about who you are, your limitations, your need for grace, and yielding to God his proper place. Now, as you and I struggle against pride, um, in some ways, it's never going to be something that you just read a book, come down for prayer, and then you're just like free of it. Um, I grew up with neurological stuff. I had a seizure when I was a little kid, and I've had migraines my whole life. And, you know, I've read different blogs on how to get rid of migraines and different things, and none of that stuff works. For me... I'll never be free of migraines, but there are a lot of things I can do to keep migraines from dominating my life. The Bible tells us that we are pre genetically predisposed to pride and to sin. And there's nothing you can do to free yourself permanently from pride, but there are things you can do that will keep pride from dominating your life and turning you into an accidental Pharisee. Uh, one of those things is confession. And confession is a part of our life that is best done in prayer, both individually and also corporately. Uh, and part of the way that I've, I've started to pray has been to incorporate physical elements into my daily prayers. 
So I'll try to pray with my hands first in a ball, and I'll say, God, I realize that my default is to hold on to things as if I'm in control. And then I turn my hands over. I say, God, I release whatever things in my life that I'm trying to control of, trying to control that you don't want in my life. And I realize that I am short-sighted and limited, and I can't even envision the right future for myself uh, more than you do. Then I'll turn my hands over and say, God, I receive from you whatever it is that you want me to receive. This is why Jesus in his prayer, uh, teaching his disciples how to pray, teaches them this line to pray to God, God, your kingdom come, your way of things, your will be done in my life. Not the will that I thought that I wanted, your will be done in my life. And I'm telling you guys, it's a hard prayer to pray, but it will shape you and I in ways that we could never imagine. If you're looking for a way to kickstart your prayer life and to really work in some uh, some pride-defeating habits, praying the Lord's Prayer and allowing a daily reflection of turning over your will to his will is a great way to confess who you are and to come to him and put him in his right and proper place. Uh, the second thing that we can do is something that we're told to do in Scripture is to look to Christ. The Bible tells us to set our minds on Jesus, and it's an intentional act and decision to turn our attention to to do things like come to church and to go to community group and to read scripture and to pray because there's something about all of us that will naturally drift away from Jesus. And one of the things I know to be true about me that's also true about you is that you and I will become what we behold. What you look at, you will become more and more like. And in scripture, we're told to look to Jesus. Paul in Philippians 2 gives us this very direct exhortation. He says, adopt the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of the things that's the most helpful thing for me and for you will be to make a daily rhythm to look to Jesus, the one who humbled himself to the point of death, and for ask Jesus to give you his life. Let's turn to him right now. God, our good and gracious Father, You know how much pride lives in my own mind and heart, and you know how unable I am to evict it. And Lord, as I turn to you, our suffering servant, uh, the, the, the one who could have demanded all things and yet claimed nothing, Lord, I pray that you would let your life leak into mine, that you would direct me, you would make me alive with you, you would humble me, and you would allow me to live a a version of faith that resembles you, that I'm becoming more like you and not like a Pharisee. Lord, I thank you for your goodness and your truth that I can come to you, warts and all, to be loved and accepted. And Lord, I come in need of cleansing from my pride. I come in need of your Holy Spirit's awakening in areas of my life that have been killed by my own pride and unwillingness to entertain things. Lord, I ask for forgiveness for all the times I compare myself to other people and come out on top. Lord, help me to see myself as a recipient of
of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.